An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest, Greg Brodsky. Greg is the founder and executive director of Start.coop, an incubator for businesses organized as cooperatives. If you don't know about cooperatives as a business model, you're going to hear a lot about them over the next few minutes. Greg is an expert, and I find them fascinating. An alternative ownership model at such name brands as Ocean Spray, Cranberry, Ace Hardware, and REI that rarely gets talked about. It's an overlooked part of the economic landscape. And if you like shopping at independent stores or drinking at craft breweries, they're indispensables. Prior to starting Start.coop, Greg founded the Bike Cooperative, a retailer-owned purchasing for more than 300 independent bicycle stores. He also served as Director of Cooperative Development for the Independent Brewers Alliance, and I might add, despite not particularly liking beer, being one of his favorite beverages. Greg sees Start.coop's mission as empowering entrepreneurs in building transformative, scalable, cooperatively owned businesses. That in turn, at least in theory, should create an, I quote, viable, sustainable alternatives to economic consolidation, end quote, otherwise known as chain stores and industries dominated by a single enterprise. So let's talk about co-ops. Welcome, Greg. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So what's your origin story? How'd you grow up, get educated, and turn into an advocate for cooperative businesses. How'd you become the person you are today? Well, when I was growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, my dad owned a local independent carpet store, which was his father's before him. And, and um, his father died when he was 13 years old. And my dad took over the carpet store. So honestly, when I was growing up, I didn't understand co-ops, maybe like most, most people. Uh, what I knew was my dad owned the carpet store. But when I was about seven, my dad got together with 10 other guys that owned carpet stores around the US and they said, hey, you know, we're all buying from the same suppliers. We all have the same operational expenses. We all have the same marketing challenges, training challenges. There must be some economy of scale of working together. And they didn't know what, that what they were forming was called a cooperative, but that was the start of a cooperative. And so really my, my father and another friend of his started this group part-time. And if you fast forward now, 30 years later, that group has over 2000 independent uh, floor covering stores around the US. They do billions of dollars in annual sales and they have managed to keep independent stores uh, in business because of the cooperative nature of their buying power. But the, the way that I got into it is many years later, uh, when I was about 25, I was working at a bike store in Boston, where I, where I still live. 
And I was telling my dad one day about the challenges of the local bike store owner. And he said, oh, is there a co-op in that industry? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. But but tell me more about this co-op thing that you do because, you know, I was part of a co-op in college around food, but that's really different than carpet and, and bicycles. And I don't, I don't get it, you know? And I think that's really where most people's heads are. You know, everyone's heard the word co-op, but they don't really understand it. But for me, that was the beginning of a 10 year journey where we started the nation's only person co-op for bike stores. And we based it uh, very much on the model my father had created for floor covering stores. And so we, we helped bike stores buy better and kind of marketing programs and training programs. But that's really how I got into it. So as you say, you and I have thrown around the term co-op and there is a survey out there that says consumers in the United States like the idea of a cooperative, but actually have no idea what it is. So let's get to it. What is a co-op? How prevalent are they? And what are the advantages and disadvantages compared to other forms of ownership, like corporations, partnerships, sole proprietorships? Well, as you say, you know, co-ops are one of these words that everyone's heard. Uh, but it turns out 89% of people can't accurately define. Uh, and I like to joke that we'd actually be better off if we made up a new word, because at least people, hey, what, what is that? You know, but co-ops, you say co-op and people think of just a consumer food co-op model, or people think of just a housing thing, or maybe some awkward housing situation they had in college. It sounds, it can sound socialist, it can sound hippie, it can sound dated. These are all the baggage associated with cooperatives. So the way that we define it is as an ownership model, not a business model. So, you know, as, as we all know, and, you know, most of corporate America, you know, the owners are on one side and the people supporting the business are on the other side, right? So you might have a founder or a founder and a handful of investors on one side of the business. And then the other side, you have the workers and the consumers. And what's that led, had, had led to is the massive wealth gap we see in our country, right? Where a handful of people own the majority of wealth. And actually, when you look at the numbers on the wealth gap, the reason why that is increasing is most of the new wealth being created is from capital investments where people already had the money to invest into new investments, whether it's private equity or public equity, right? The, the majority of wealth is not being created from day in, day out, W-2 income. So with cooperative ownership, what we're trying to do is bring the Venn diagram together and say, what if the people supported the business actually owned it? And if this were not a podcast, I would say, imagine my hands coming together uh, to form the Venn diagram. I think where it gets complicated is that cooperative ownership can exist at any level of the supply chain. So by that, I mean, you can have a worker-owned company, equal exchange just outside of Boston here, is an $80 million a year coffee, tea, and chocolate company owned by 120 workers. There's thousands of examples of worker ownership throughout the U.S., not just cooperatives, but ESOPs. But you can also have a consumer-owned company. So REI is consumer-owned. Food co-ops are consumer-owned. Mutually-owned bay are, are consumer-owned. As, as you pointed out when you and I were emailing, Vanguard Financial is consumer-owned, right? So these are all consumer-owned models. But then if you go up a, one more layer in the supply chain, you can have a small business owned. So that's the kind of co-op I was doing around bike stores or craft brewery owned. But the best known example of small business owned is Ace Hardware, which is a brand owned by the 4,000 
independent local mom and pop hardware stores around the US. You got one more layer and you've got farmer owned. So Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice, Blue Diamond Almonds, Cabot Cheese, Organic Valley Dairy. These are all farmer owned. So I think where people get confused is they say, well, what in the world does Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice, right? Which is an agricultural cup owned by farmers have to do with REI, which is a consumer owned outdoor store. It's very confusing, right? But it can exist at any layer of the supply chain in, in any sector. And, and to just answer the last part of your question, the primary benefits are that they can share wealth in very different ways. So rather than sharing wealth based on just the capital interest that someone had the money to put in the first place, cooperatives can share money back based on how much someone participates in the cooperative. So if one farmer participates far, far more than another farmer, they get back more, uh, maybe even if they put in the same amount of money. And the, the cooperative entities also tend to reflect member voice much better because at the end of the day, because they're owned by, let's say, farmers or workers, whoever it is, those groups are on the board. They get to make the governance decisions. So their behaviors tend to be more values aligned, more community oriented than an, an organization owned primarily by external investors. And that's who's on the board. And that's what's driving the decision making. So let me cycle back to two things that you said. First, you said be better off without the word co-op. You named your incubator start.coop. I will just point out. And second, let me ask about it. What does it do? How successful has it been? What companies it has it incubated? And most of all, as you said, being cooperative is an ownership governance model. It's not a business model or a customer acquisition model, a talent model, or anything else a business needs. So what's the need for start.coop? Why can't Y Combinator do the same thing or any other incubator or for that matter, venture capital firm, help fund and mentor cooperative businesses? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. L let me start with the need and, and maybe where the ecosystem is today. When we tell people these stories of cooperative ownership, whether you talk about REI or worker ownership, or uh, I, I, you know, I'll give you an example from our accelerator. We had a graduate called the Drivers Co-op in New York City, which I, I think is where you're based. And it was a group of drivers that said, hey, you know, we're, we're getting screwed over by Uber and Lyft, right? We're working our butts off here and we're barely making minimum wage by the time you take out our expenses for our cars or our insurance. And they said, we're doing all the work. Why are the investors extracting the vast majority of the profit? And they said, well, we could start our own platform. Now, that is very, very difficult to do to create a platform that goes up against Uber and Lyft. But they, they found our accelerator program and we said, this is either going to be one of our greatest success stories or one of our greatest failures. Now, it turns out it's been an amazing success story. They launched about a little over two years ago with a lead store in New York Times. They now have 8,000 drivers in New York City that are earning 25 to 30% more an hour than if they were driving for Uber or Lyft. They own the company. They've established the first uh, minimum wage for a gig driver owned company. Their voice matters. And more importantly, they're just bringing home more money to their families, right? But I think when we tell people these stories, whether we tell people that story or worker ownership or farmer ownership, so many people say to me, 
geez, you know, that's the kind of company I wish we had more of in our economy, right? I think a lot of people, and I imagine some of your listeners feel like there is this gap between the values we have as individuals that, that, that when we look at the problems in society around wealth ownership, around the racial wealth gap, I think a lot of people feel like we want to bring more people into the economy and have them benefit financially and, and, and feeling like they have a voice in our economy. And the question becomes, how do we do more of that, right? So the question we get a lot is, why aren't there just more cooperatives out there? And so we have to talk about these three layers of problems. One, that there's a, a perception problem, the, the fact that 89% of people can't accurately define it and it's very confusing. The second problem is that even for people who want to do it, there's a sense of this seems very confusing and very complicated. And then the last piece is there's a financing problem. And I think the intersection with the accelerator is most accelerators are really based on how do you get the investment dollars that are predicated on some future exit for the company? When you look at the startup methodologies and landscapes of these accelerators, incubators, it's all based on let me figure out my valuation. Let me get a lot of money in. Let me be really successful so that within eight to 10 years, I can sell this because 10 years is the length of the average GPLP fund. And what's different about cooperatives and the challenge when we talk about the financial markets is that cooperatives are not selling out within 10 years. They're actually the opposite of that. How do we create long-term ownership, whether it's workers or drivers or farmers, but you need to then have really different financial instruments available. And we need to talk about different governance models connected to that. So those are some of the challenges that we see. So I think you, you've tried to solve the financing by having something called the equitable economy fund set up within or linked to um, start.coop. So, so tell me what the business model is of the incubator itself and of the fund itself. So our accelerator is set up to support cooperative founders who have an ambition of scale. And we define scale as someone who wants to change their sector, change their region. And there's a lot of beautiful three-person-owned cooperatives, maybe a worker, co you know, coffee worker co-op or something like that. And we, we actually have a, a really great network of other co-op developers, and we try to send them back to, the, to one of those developers. What we're looking for is someone who wants to create the next REI or Ocean Spray or Drivers Co-op. And so what we do is we are primarily grant funded. We take founders in, we run them through a 12 to 16 week accelerator program where we connect them to mentors, coaches, peer coaching, curriculum. Um, and in many ways, we look very similar to a Y Combinator or an, any other incubator. What we do differently is we have a very different focus on governance, obviously, who, <laughs> who owns the company, right? And what it, whose voice is at the table, who gets to seat at the table, and then also the financing of it. And so the financing of it is really where we felt like we had to innovate. We've now run the program for five years and we got to the end of year two and we had some amazing stories coming out of the program. We had a, a patient-owned health technology platform we had a black farmer co-op coming out of it. We had a musician-owned platform coming out of it. And we said, 
these are viable, important business models, social impact models, but, and, and, and we feel like the founders have done the work and, and if they were just doing a regular VC back model, there would probably be some investor interest here, but because there is no exit at the eight year mark, we're almost setting our founders up for failure if we don't innovate some different financial instrument. And the challenge we saw in the landscape was that most financing for cooperatives is debt-based because the members, if we go back to the ownership model, the owners traditionally have owned 100% of the equity. And so the only financing available to them was outside debt funds, loan funds. There's a handful of CDFI loan funds that participate in these cooperatives. But when you think about the stage of these companies, the very early stage, and often debt financing is either not a good fit, or when we talk about these kind of platform cooperatives like the Drivers Co-op and others, they may not have a lot of physical assets, right? These are technology solutions and platform solutions. So where is the equity or equity-like capital? And so we felt like even though we didn't get into this to launch a fund, we had to try to innovate on behalf of our grads. So we created something we call the Equitable Economy Fund, which is really just a, a group of accredited investors who come together every 45 days to hear pitches from our founders to decide, you know, based on the small amount of financing we have, uh, how, to, how to allocate it. But the other piece that we do is we're trying to innovate form sheets that better align with this sort of financing. And so one way to think about it is how do you invest in a company without a traditional exit? And we're not the only ones trying to solve this. There's been a lot of great work done within revenue-based financing. But so rather than investing solely on appreciation of share price, where we invest is either at an early stage revenue share, uh, which is what the driver's co-op did and, and where we participated, we actually not only invested, but helped run a crowdfunding campaign where they got thousands of other consumers to participate and they raised over $1.3 million to, to get going. And now they're raising more money. Or we invest via profit uh, uh, allocations or we invest via dividends. But those are the three primary models we use. And so what we find is that we get a lot of founders where uh, they just need guidance on, let me put together a term sheet that actually makes sense for our model rather than assuming the exit is where investors will receive all their money back. It's, it's more of a self-liquidating exit, if that makes sense. So as, as noted, many of our listeners work in finance, and thank you for mentioning that Vanguard is owner, or actually investor owned, as are lots of well-known insurance companies, Mass Mutual, Northwestern Mutual, Mutual of Ohio, and Guardian Life. They're organized mutual companies where the policy owners own the company. Do you consider those cooperatives? I think you do. And so do you see finance as a fertile ground for cooperatives or why has it never been more? Have you thought about the financial sector specifically? So people hate my answer on this. I'll, I'll share it in my answer, John, and maybe you'll, you'll hate my answer as well. It's probably a horrible thing to say on a podcast, but you know, people say, well, what sectors are right for cooperatives, right? And what I would say is I've never seen a, a business or a sector that can't be cooperatively owned, but nor are there any sectors that, that have to be. So I, I view any business that has the majority of the financial rights and the governance rights owned by the community, 
rather than outside investors as cooperatively owned. So I would say we view credit unions as cooperatively owned, mutual insurance companies. I'll give you other, a few random stories. The Associated Press is cooperatively owned by media outlet. There's a lot of examples hidden in plain sight throughout our economy. But, you know, I, I think there's so much opportunity as well. So like when a random example I didn't even know about when Ukraine was invaded last year, the Swiss financial network in Europe came up and it turns out that's cooperatively owned by bank, right? Mm -hmm. So not only can you have credit consumer owned or worker owned, owned, but you can have this almost second tier cooperative that's owned by entities itself, like Swift or like the Associated Press. So there is a lot of opportunity. It's just really a question of, uh, you know, how do you want to be structured? Right now we're working with a, um, a network of Native American CDFIs in the Western part of the U.S. And these are all local loan funds who lend to Native American communities. And they have actually gotten together and say, we want a better way to aggregate resources between our own CDFI loan funds. We need to develop infrastructure ourselves. So they're working on a cooperative basis, develop better training, better resources, uh, better loan reserves. So there's a lot of different ways that the cooperative model can be applied. And it's really a question of like, what problem are you trying to solve for your members? You started by saying that there's a lot of misconceptions about cooperatives, you know, that they're socialistic, that they're not capitalistic. And yet, you know, you've also talked about income inequality and, and where that comes from in terms of sort of a Thomas Piketty-esque capital growing faster than the amount of capital able to be earned by workers. Let's talk about cooperatives and their relationship to mainstream capital from a political point of view. And, and this is sort of personal to me. I grew up in a cooperative housing development. It was originally sponsored literally a century ago in the 20s, 1920s, by the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. It featured a community center, a joint educational program, all sorts of community building Features. I mean, I went to my first dance in the local community hall, right? I mean, you know, as a, as a preteen. And if you moved out, you had to give a deposit when you moved in. And when you moved out, you got back your ownership deposit plus fixed income. You couldn't sell it at market rate. And there were four such developments built at the same time in the Bronx. They were subject actually to a retrospective exhibit at the Museum of the Sea of New York called Radicals of the Bronx. Well, I don't really think growing up it was particularly radical. It was a decent place to live in. And it's still there. It's called the Amalgamated Housing. It's next to Van Cortland Park in the Bronx. Now, by contrast, or perhaps ironically, today I also live in a cooperative. It's in Manhattan. It's more a form of ownership, an alternative to a landlord, than a community building exercise. It's inhabited by successful people work in finance, education, government, whatever. Apartments sell at market rates in the millions of dollars. No one would call it radical, right? I mean, we're more likely to be criticized as part of the establishment. Now, you've written that the idea of an alternative to winner-takes-all capitalism is alluring. And sometimes people talk about it as the cooperative movement. But do cooperatives really play the role as an alternative to winner-takes-all capitalism? Is it a movement or is it, as we've talked about throughout the day, you know, Vanguard's about as established as it gets. Is it just an alternative form of ownership 
that, you know, can be used in different ways. And sometimes the tool fits and sometimes it doesn't. Well, John, I feel like you're asking me the hard questions now, which I, I appreciate. What you're raising is such an interesting point. And let, let me just talk, let me use the two examples of the housing co-ops you raised, and maybe then we can get to whatever larger lessons listeners want to take away from this conversation. So we, we often talk about the fact that, you know, cooperatives need a great ownership model and a great business model, and, and, and they're different. So the housing co-op you grew up in was, uh, in the housing co-op world, there's what's called a limited equity housing cooperative. And what this means is that when someone sells, they may not get the full appreciation of whatever that unit is worth at market value or the share of the cooperative is worth at market value. There's some, some formula for figuring out how much the unit goes up or the share of the cooperative goes up. And so that's a business model question that is related to sort of the social impact of that organization. And I know I'm throwing a few terms around, but the, the co-op you grew up in, I'm guessing was maybe formed by people who are more activists who said, hey, we want a way to make sure affordability stays core to this, this place's mission over time, right? And that's a choice. That's a, that's a business model choice. It's an ownership model choice that could be made by whoever was on the board of, of that cooperative. It's an interesting choice that we can debate the merits of in real time here for a second, because, you know, when you look at uh, Co-op City and some other limited equity housing co-ops, some of those have then struggled to uh, pay the bills or have the capital to, to deal with some, some ongoing expenses that came up, right? And then there are other co-ops where they say, we're not going to have any cap on that at all. We're going to sort of let it ride with the market and they can become very exclusive and privileged. And I think even though I'm on here as a co-op expert, you know, I'm going to resist the temptation to say co-ops are this, this one size fits all, you know, my, my father is still in a cooperative space. You know, he, he likes to say, when you've seen one co-op, you've seen one co-op. And, and I think that the two examples you bring up are a beautiful example of how they can be applied in different ways. Uh, and just like we would never say any one corporation or any one S corp, you know, is identical or another, people need to find the ways that these instruments apply to their community. And there are trade-offs to make, right? And, and you raise the interesting point of, are these truly alternatives to winner takes all capitalism? You know, I would still argue they are, but they're, they're not perfect. Right. They're not a panacea for all that ails us. They still exist in a larger capitalist system. And so this question of then can someone else come in and buy the unit is is a complicated one. And I and I don't think that cooperatives solve all of that because at the end of the day, you know, it's a question of okay, are you rewarding the residents who live there for many, many years? And how are you balancing the needs of new people coming in who want to buy that unit? Because the larger landscape is still sort of this capital accumulation landscape. And so there are some hard trade-offs to figure out there. Hey, let's finish with uh, some short Q&A, okay? What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Why? Right now, I'm really passionate about, hey, how do we make it easier for people to form these entities? Which might sound really geeky, but we're spending a lot of time thinking about 
the legal incorporation side. And I'm reading, reading all these uh, books about, you know, C-Corps versus LLCs versus partnerships. My wife and I, uh, she jokes that she's like, why are you reading that? You know, it's like, it looks so dry, but it turns out you can have a cooperative corporation or LLC or a partnership or S-Corp. It doesn't have to be sort of a co-op at the state level. So I'm getting very geeky about uh, forms of incorporation. But the other thing I guess I'm really geeky about is, you know, what are we doing to address climate change? Uh, you know, I'm just old enough where I, I now have two kids and I spent a lot of time thinking about all the, all the crisis that's going on around us and, uh, you know, what are we going to do about it? So those are the two things that I think a lot about. How do you relax? I don't always do a great job relaxing. I think I am like many entrepreneurs probably put a lot of energy into my work and think a lot about the social impact I can make. But when I am smart enough to take time to relax, I uh, find that I have to schedule time for myself to go to the gym. And so uh, I do go twice a week to the gym and I try to take about half an hour every morning to either do some yoga or go for a walk. I just really make sure I am a balanced person, right? That like at the end of the day, these brains we carry around are still in our bodies. And if our bodies are not happy, then our brains are definitely not happy. Hey, listeners can't see it, and, but uh, I can barely make out on the wall behind you three guitars. So what music do you listen to? I like so much music. So my wife is a musician um, and I, I just, you know, music is amazing, right? So I listen to a lot of jazz. I listen to a lot of classic rock. Uh, I've recently been reappreciating some old Bob Marley, which maybe sounds like a, a stereotype for someone who's into cooperatives, but there's some really fun old stuff I've been reappreciating. And uh, there, there's a guy that I got turned on to recently. I really like named Nick Mulvey, M-U-L-V-E-Y. He's got some great lyrics. Cool. What sort of musician is your wife? Give her a plug. My wife, before we had kids, was a very talented uh, folk and country performer. But now that we have kids, she only plays sometimes. But she plays guitar, ukulele, violin, piano, and she sings beautifully. And so someday we'll get her back out there. Aside from uh, the basics of incorporation, what are you reading? Anything, anything for fun? Well, I, I read a lot of parenting books these days. You know, I, <laughs> I, stuck her, I, I read a lot of great nonfiction. There was a, there's a sci-fi book I really want to read that is kind of this interesting, like market socialist future economy where, and I'll, I'll have to pull up the name here, but uh, there, there's a, a well-known worker co-op in Spain called Mondragon and, uh, and this one writer who's won many different sci-fi awards actually created a future where, where Mondragon is, is, is have that has this large intergalactic role. But anyway, so I would say these days I, I read a lot of, you know, how I've heard my kids better because I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and, uh, I'm obsessed with this woman named Dr. Becky, who's like one of these Instagram therapists. And I've been reading her book and to figure out how to just better be a better parent, frankly, because cooperatives may be hard, but being a parent is much, much harder. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Yeah, I, I think if there was one thing I would like to tell everyone in the world, if there's one thing I care about more than changing ownership and changing wealth in our world, I would talk about. Climate. Um, I, I think the words 
climate change, and this may sound too heavy, John, I apologize, but I think when we talk about climate change, it sounds like this thin, invisible kind of fluffy language. And I think we need to start talking about it in more dramatic terms, that the world is on, on fire, right? That the heat is actually going to get us and get our crops and, and, and frankly, become the largest financial events of the next few generations. And, and I would love to change people's perspective that climate change is not this invisible thing, that it is a massive financial risk. And in the same way that we insure our homes or our cars, that we need to start taking steps to ensure that the crops don't burn, that the homes don't burn. You know, two recent events I've, I've thought a lot about are the fact that insurance companies are not covering new homes in California. The fact that Georgia lost the vast majority of their peach crop this past year, right, because of climate. And so these are not kind of the, the fluffy issues of, you know, let's say trees. These are real people's lives and real financial things that need to be accounted for. And I want us all to change our language to start talking about it as a financial issue, not a climate issue. Because I, I think that, you know, and that might sound too practical, but I think it's the only way to kind of align the left and the right that we really do have to take action on a more dramatic scale because there is such a massive uh, business and societal risk there. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik with our special guest, Greg Brodsky. Greg is the founder and executive director of Start.coop, which you now know what a co-op is, and uh, certainly passionate about changing business models and climate. Greg, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCombick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.